Hello once again from Paul and Rachel. It's Here Comes Christmas. It is, and it's Saturday the 12th of December. The 12th of December, so we're, we're virtually halfway to Christmas now. I feel it's like running a marathon, you know, when you cross that halfway point. Not that I actually have ever run a marathon, but (laughs) it must be a sigh of relief when you do that. I think we'll start by looking back, shall we? As we do. Absolutely. And in 1901, Marconi sent his first wireless transmission 2,000 miles across the Atlantic Ocean. How cool. Okay. Yeah, that was quite an achievement. And, that was uh, a huge achievement. Mm-hmm. Marconi, I think he was the Steve Jobs of his day. He was not actually a technical genius, but he was a great risk taker, an entrepreneur, uh, a relentless worker and experimenter. And uh, he didn't, didn't actually invent wireless t- telegraphy, but he did realise that it had commercial potential and he was the man who got it off the ground actually the first transmission across open water was actually very near to us it was across the bristol channel oh was it right a few years by marconi marconi Mm -hmm. yeah from an island in the channel to cardiff yeah so in those early days like most inventions people really didn't know what it was for i mean what could you do with this radio thing (laughs) then but one or two of the events which actually put Marconi on the map was um, when the Titanic sank. Mm. Telegraphy was used to call for help from the Carpathia Mm. who came and picked up survivors. Mm. And in fact, strangely enough, Marconi had tickets to travel on the Titanic and he was cleared to do so, but he instead took the Lusitania a few days earlier. Wow. Not when Mm. it sank, but... Mm. So if he had been on the Titanic, then perhaps things wouldn't have advanced as quickly as they did. And the other great thing, uh, actually, a couple of years before that, in 1910, wireless telegraphy was used for the first time to catch a criminal. Oh, how was that? Because uh, Dr. Crippen, famous Mm. murderer, Mm -hmm. uh, had jumped on a boat and was travelling across the Atlantic with his mistress. But the captain of the ship became suspicious of him, telegraphed back to London, and the police got on a boat, overtook his ship and arrested him when he arrived in New York. So again, it was the first time that radio had been used in that way. Yeah. So Marconi profited. Yeah. What do you think Marconi would say if he could see the way that we all use mobile phones today? It's say, where's my royalties? <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, Frank Sinatra was born. Your mother would be so excited, wouldn't she? She would be celebrating hugely. My mum was a big fan of Frank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he was, he was a huge star. People think that screaming at pop stars started with the Beatles, but apparently Frank... Had all the girls screaming at him long before that. Oh dear, was that your mother? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that. We're going to hear a song in a moment that we was because uh, Frank did a lot of Christmas songs in his time, and uh, he worked a lot with uh, a couple of writers, Sammy Khan and Julie Stein. And we're going to hear a song by Sammy Khan 
which was recorded by Frank. Sammy Kahn was a bit of a character. He started doing one-man shows at the end of his career. And I, I actually saw him in London about 40 years ago, I think it was, at the London Theatre. And he told the story of how this song called The Christmas Waltz was written. And his partner, Julie Stein, Julie was a, a man, actually, in spite of his name. J- oh, right, I didn't know that. J-U-L-E, it was spelt, yeah. And right. every time they got together, they would uh, warm up for a writing session. Julie Stein would sit at the piano and he would play a Viennese waltz to just to limber up. And they'd been asked by Frank Sinatra to write them a Christmas song. And it was just after Irving Berlin had written White Christmas and they said, oh, for heaven's sake, what are we going to do to mm. beat that? I mean, you, that is the ultimate Christmas song of all time. We yes. couldn't possibly write a Christmas song. Julie said, no, Frank said he wants a Christmas song. <laughs> and that's... <laughs> don't, Fra- don't argue with him. <laughs> Sammy heard Julie playing this waltz to warm up again. And he thought, OK, nobody has ever written a Christmas waltz before. That will be our niche. That's what we'll do. And he slapped some words on it and the rest is history. I love it. It's got some really interesting chords in there that just make it stand out a little bit. It swings along. Yeah. What a life, though, being a songwriter. I mean, talk about money for old rope. Um, Sammy Khan actually picked up four Oscars for his writing, not to mention quite a bit of cash along the way. He wrote music for a film called Three Coins in the Fountain. Oh, yes. The lyrics to this, for heaven's sake, here's one verse from it. Three coins in the fountain, each one seeking happiness, thrown by three helpful lovers, which one will the fountain bless? Okay, so that's one verse. There's one more verse with equally profound lyrics. (laughs) They recorded this song in, they wrote it in one hour. It won him an Oscar. And beyond that, the film company, 20th Century Fox, actually forgot to ask him to sign a contract. So on top of that, he also got 100% of the royalties. I mean, what what a way to earn your living. Yeah, amazing. And actually, as we were talking about yesterday, it's so simple, isn't it? Simple, but... Effective. Effective. Yeah, it does what it says on the can. Okay, let's hear the, the Christmas waltz. Thank you. 
on his way. He's filled his sleigh with things, things for you and for me. It's that time of year when the world falls in love. Every song you hear seems to say, Merry Christmas, may your new year dreams come true. I think we don't hear that song enough on the radio these days. It's so beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> Talking about beautiful, uh-huh. I always think if I went to New Zealand, I would never want to come back. Why New Zealand? I don't know. You see photos of it, you see it in films, and you think, this is heaven on earth, don't oh, you? Uh, a lot of, I remember the Lord of the Rings, a, a mm. lot of scenes were shot in New Zealand in yes, that film. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Very striking. Yeah, I, I know striking. what you mean. Yeah, it would be yes. a great place to go. Okay. A few days ago, I spoke to Nigel from Ubley, who the Christmas of 2010 had gone over to visit his son, and they were in their rented little cottage when an earthquake struck. And I asked him what happened. We clearly had to leave um, the little colonial cottage that we were staying in, which stood, but just everything within the cottage was trashed. We were just about to get lunch. Suddenly you could hear this noise like an express train coming towards you. And the type of earthquake that they tend to have there is lateral rather than vertical. So when an earthquake is lateral, it's shallow. It's only about five kilometres below the surface and it's 10 kilometres away from where we were, which means that the ground buckles. Indeed, the roads outside buckled. If you can imagine the waves on a sea, suddenly a road which was flat becomes rippled, just like corrugated iron. And to drive out, you had to drive over these corrugations. To talk about the cathedral, the central area of Christchurch was built during the Victorian period and largely of brick. So therefore, it was the area that suffered most and that was where most of the fatalities sadly happened. So we used to attend Christchurch Cathedral for worship each Sunday. And the dean there, coincidentally, was ordained in Bath and Wells Diocese and was born and brought up in Kingship. So we knew Peter Beck quite well, and uh, we used to have this banter each year that we used to arrive at the time of the floral carpet. Now, the ladies um, who arranged flowers in the church filled the whole of the central nave of the cathedral with a floral carpet. And that was the prelude to the, well, their equivalent of the Chelsea Flower Show, which took place in Hadley Park. And... Coincidentally, the day before that earthquake, the ladies were in there clearing the carpet. So had it struck a day earlier, there would have been quite a number of ladies there who might well have added to the fatalities. Also coincidentally, the day after the earthquake, there was due to be a concert 
to raise money for those affected by that September and indeed Boxing Day 2010 earthquakes. Uh, and they had both um, caused quite a bit of damage. Most of that damage was actually outside of Christchurch. Now, this is all to do with liquefaction. It's just like a sludge that comes out of the ground. When we came out of the cottage, the whole of the front garden was filled with this sludge. And when I went out onto the roadside where my uh, hire car was, it was already up to its axles in this sludge. Mm. In fact, that earthquake caused 180,000 tonnes of liquefaction to come out of the ground. Now, I was talking earlier about the corrugation in the road. Obviously, in the dips, it's full of liquefaction. Now, there are some dips which actually had holes in the bottom. And there is one uh, photograph of a car with its nose. Well, in fact, half the car in one of these dips. It's quite um, difficult to drive out through the liquefaction. But the liquefaction also causes changes in the environment. We used to go to uh, a nature reserve just north of Christchurch. And we went there in early 2011 when we arrived. And we climbed up into the hide as usual. And this was a wetland reserve. So here in front of you, there should be looking out, like looking out on the lake here. No, the lake had moved a kilometre to the north. So it changes all sorts of things, not just the lives of people, but also the environment itself. And after the earthquake, and within that first five, ten minutes, you go out and you think, well, now what are we going to do? But civil defence people, these are volunteers, were out on the road directing traffic, checking every single house in every road in the city to make sure that people are okay, um, picking up stray animals, there was a dog and completely disorientated this poor mm -hmm. dog. But civil defence took it up and because they have chips, they can trace who owns it and where they are. Um, so that was fantastic. And also, those people who were homeless were amazingly able to take over the site of the Ellerslie Flower Show, where there were lots of marquees, and civil defence again provided temporary beds in those marquees. And for some time after the earthquake, that was temporary home to a lot of people who were displaced. And Victoria Matthews, who's the Bishop of Christchurch, um, spent the first 48, 72 hours there looking after people and comforting them, even though her own house had been destroyed. She, she was tremendous what she did there. Many thanks to Nigel there. That was so interesting, wasn't it? And I don't think I'm quite as keen to go over to New Zealand now. So earthquakes are very common in New Zealand. The only place I've been to that, that is very earthquakey was in California. And I remember staying in the hotel and there was a notice on the, the table in the hotel and it said, in case of earthquake, hide under this table. <laughs> And was it a wimpy it was table? A, it was a beefy table. Oh, was it? Yeah. yeah, jolly well needs to be, doesn't it? So in New Zealand, I think they're quite used to 
having earthquakes, aren't they? And we've that, got a poem, haven't we? Yeah, actually, we were looking around for a bit of literary illustration of that story. Uh, we came across a poem on the interwebs uh, by Jean Richards, who was living in New Zealand in 2010, when on Christmas Eve, the earthquake hit Christchurch. So he was safely on the North Island, but in this poem, he imagines what it was like on the South Island where the earthquake hit. It's quite New Zealandish language, isn't it? We should prepare you for it. <laughs> Twas two days before Christmas when all through the house not a thing was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung, though the chimney not there, in the hopes that St Nicholas soon would be there. Then all of the sudden, just out to sea, there was a rumbling noise. What could it be? We all knew at once just what it was. Another earthquake. Let's head for the doors. The ground under our feet started to heave, and everyone was thinking now, this town we must leave. The earth spewed up from under the sand and spread its foulness all over the land. It was all over as soon as it started, and the cracks in our houses increasingly parted. Then... A little bit later, about a quarter to four, Mother Nature dished up just a little bit more. Our nerves are frazzled, our spirit down the sink. It's quite enough to drive a person to drink. Yet our pluck is still undaunted, our courage strong and sure. This will not break us. Never yet was a Cantabrian a core. So we will carry on with Christmas, whatever Earth sends. We'll celebrate as usual, with family and friends. And as we think of the people from across Cook Straits, we will feel special wishes from three million good mates. Thanks to Chris for reading that. Um, right, it's time for the Reverend Simon Lewis, who's going to give us another verse from the Gospel according to St Luke. On this 12th day of December, our reading is chapter 2, verse 8. There were some shepherds in that part of the country who were spending the night in the fields, taking care of their flocks. And the question... What was the life of a shepherd like just over 2,000 years ago in Judea, which is now modern Israel? Now into the story come the shepherds, the oh-so-very-cuddly shepherds, with long beards, with the gorgeous tea towels on their heads, and the nice cuddly sheep stood, sat, lying around them, sleeping or chewing. The pastoral picture on so many sweet Christmas cards helps the modern reader totally misunderstand the reality of history and what's going on in the story. Shepherding in that place at that time, in the first century, was a despised occupation. Shepherds had their place in society, and it was low, very low. They were scorned as shiftless, 
dishonest people who grazed their flocks on others' lands. And so often the case, if you're constantly made to feel inadequate, you behave to type. Against this background of the lowly and outcast sitting on a hillside is born a king, a saviour, the Messiah. Remember, this child is born into a kingly family. Joseph is descended from the first king of the Hebrews, King David, and King David himself was born in Bethlehem. But also know, this child, now named, is born in very ordinary setting. A stable for animals. Absolutely nothing kingly here. Thank you, Simon. OK, well, that's it for another day. Time Have to go. Have we forgotten something, Paul? Oh, I suppose you want a bit of sparkling humour. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You can be the fairy on the Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> OK, talking about technology, as we were doing earlier, why was it that Mary and Joseph could not join their work conference call? I don't know. Why couldn't they join their work conference call? Because there was no Zoom at the inn. <laughs> Do you realise this time last year we hadn't, oh, certainly I hadn't, heard of Zoom? Uh, we will never hear of anything but Zoom from now from on. From now on. Mm. Oh. Hey-ho. Right, how life has changed in 12 months. OK, well, let's hope it doesn't change too much before tomorrow. Back again I then, know. folks. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.